Section 8 of Dear Enemy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush in Marquette, Michigan, August 2007. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster. Section 8. Friday. Dear Man of Science, you didn't come today. Please don't skip us tomorrow. I have finished the Kallikak family, and I am bursting with talk. Don't you think we ought to have a psychologist examine these children? We owe it to adopting parents not to saddle them with feeble-minded offspring. You know, I'm tempted to ask you to prescribe arsenic for Loretta's cold. I've diagnosed her case. She's a Kallikak. Is it right to let her grow up and found a line of 378 feeble-minded people for society to care for? Oh, dear, I do hate to poison the child, but what can I do? S. McBride Dear Gordon, You aren't interested in feeble-minded people, and you are shocked because I am? Well, I am equally shocked because you are not. If you aren't interested in everything of the sort that there unfortunately is in this world, how can you make wise laws? You can't. However, at your request, I will converse upon a less morbid subject. I've just bought fifty yards of blue and rose and green and corn-colored hair ribbon as an Easter present for my fifty little daughters. I am also thinking of sending you an Easter present— how would a nice fluffy little kitten please you? I can offer any of the following patterns. Number three comes in any color, gray, black, or yellow. If you will let me know which you would rather have, I will express it at once. I would write a respectable letter, but it's tea time, and I see that a guest approaches. Adio, Sally. P.S. Don't you know someone who would like to adopt a desirable baby boy with seventeen nice new teeth? April 20. My dear Judy, one a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. We've had a good Friday present of ten dozen, given by Mrs. de Paster Lambert, a high church stained glass window soul, whom I met at a tea a few days ago. Who says now that teas are a silly waste of time? She asked me about my precious little waifs, and said I was doing a noble work, and would be rewarded. I saw buns in her eyes, and sat down and talked to her for half an hour. Now I shall go and thank her in person, and tell her with a great deal of affecting detail how much those buns were appreciated by my precious little waifs, omitting the account of how precious little Punch threw his bun at Mrs. Snaith, and plastered her neatly in the eye. I think with encouragement Mrs. de Paster Lambert can be developed into a cheerful giver. Oh, I'm growing into the most shocking beggar. My family don't dare to visit me, because I demand bakshish in such a brazen manner. I threatened to remove father from my calling list, unless he shipped immediately sixty-five pairs of overalls for my prospective gardeners. A notice from the freight office this morning asks me to remove two packing-cases consigned to them by the J. L. McBride Company of Worcester, so I take it that father desires to continue my acquaintance. Jimmy hasn't sent us anything yet, and he's getting a huge salary. 
I write him frequently a pathetic list of our needs. But Gordon Halleck has learned the way to a mother's heart. I was so pleasant about the peanuts and menagerie that he now sends a present of some sort every few days, and I spend my entire time composing thank-you letters that aren't exact copies of the ones I've sent before. Last week we received a dozen big scarlet balls. The nursery is full of them. You kick them before you as you walk. And yesterday there arrived a half-bushel of frogs and ducks and fishies to float in the bathtubs. Send, O oh best of trustees, the tubs in which to float them. I am, as usual, S. McBride. Tuesday. My dear Judy, spring must be lurking about somewhere. The birds are arriving from the south. Isn't it time you followed their example? Society note from the bird o passage news. Mr. and Mrs. First Robin have returned from a trip to Florida. It is hoped that Mr. and Mrs. Jervis Pendleton will arrive shortly. Even up here in our dilatory Duchess County, the breeze smells green. It makes you want to be out and away, roaming the hills, or else down on your knees grubbing in the dirt. Isn't it funny what farmering instincts the budding spring awakens in even the most urban souls? I have spent the morning making plans for little private gardens for every child over nine. The big potato field is doomed. That is the only feasible spot for sixty-two private gardens. It is near enough to be watched from the north windows, and yet far enough away, so that their messing will not injure our highly prized landscape lawn. Also, the earth is rich, and they have some chance of success. I don't want the poor little chicks to scratch all summer, and then not turn up any treasure in the end. In order to furnish an incentive, I shall announce that the institution will buy their produce and pay in real money, though I foresee we shall be buried under a mountain of radishes. I do so want to develop self-reliance and initiative in these children, two sturdy qualities in which they are conspicuously lacking, with the exception of Sadie Kate and a few other bad ones. Children who have spirit enough to be bad I consider very hopeful. It's those who are good just from inertia that are discouraging. The last few days have been spent mainly in charming the devil out of punch, an interesting task if I could devote my whole time to it, but with one hundred and seven other little devils to charm away, my attention is sorely deflected. The awful thing about this life is that whatever I am doing, the other things that I am not doing, but ought to be, keep tugging at my skirts. There is no doubt but Punch's personal devil needs the whole attention of a whole person, preferably two persons, so that they could spell each other and get some rest. Sadie Kate has just flown in from the nursery with news of a scarlet goldfish, Gordon's gift, swallowed by one of our babies. Mercy! The number of calamities that can occur in an orphan asylum! 9 p.m. My children are in bed, and I've just had a thought. Wouldn't it be heavenly if the hibernating system prevailed among the human young? There would be some pleasures in running an asylum if one could just tuck the little darlings into bed the first of October and keep them there until the twenty-second of April. I'm yours as ever, Sally. April 24. Dear Jervis Pendleton, Esquire, This is to supplement a night telegram which I sent you ten minutes ago. 
fifty words not being enough to convey any idea of my emotions, I herewith add a thousand. As you will know by the time you receive this, I have discharged the farmer, and he has refused to be discharged. Being twice the size of me, I can't lug him to the gate and chuck him out. He wants a notification from the President of the Board of Trustees written in vigorous language on official paper in typewriting. So, dear President of the Board of Trustees, kindly supply all of this at your earliest convenience. Here follows the history of the case. The winter season still being with us, when I arrived and farming activities at a low ebb, I have heretofore paid little attention to Robert Sterry except to note on two occasions that his pig pens needed cleaning. But today I sent for him to come and consult with me in regard to spring planting. Steary came, as requested, and seated himself at ease in my office, with his hat upon his head. I suggested as tactfully as might be that he remove it, an entirely necessary request, as little orphan boys were in and out on errands, and hats off in the house, is our first rule in masculine deportment. Steary complied with my request, and stiffened himself to be against whatever I might desire. I proceeded to the subject in hand, namely, that the diet of the John Greer home in the year to come is to consist less exclusively of potatoes, at which our farmer grunted in the manner of the Honorable Cyrus Wyckoff, only it was a less ethereal and gentlemanly grunt than a trustee permits himself. I enumerated corn and beans and onions, and peas and tomatoes and beets and carrots and turnips as desirable substitutes. Steary observed that if potatoes and cabbages were good enough for him, he guessed they were good enough for charity children. I proceeded imperturbably to say that the two-acre potato-field was to be ploughed and fertilized, and laid out into sixty individual gardens, the boys assisting in the work. At this Steary exploded. The two-acre field was the most fertile and valuable piece of earth on the whole place. He guessed if I was to break that up into sixty play-gardens for the children to mess about in, I'd be hearing about it pretty danged quick from the Board of Trustees. That field was fitted for potatoes. It had always raised potatoes, and it was going to continue to raise them just as long as he had anything to say about it. "'You have nothing whatever to say about it,' I amiably replied. "'I have decided that the two-acre field is the best plot to use for the children's gardens, and you and the potatoes will have to give way.' whereupon he rose in a storm of bucolic wrath, and said he'd be gall-darned if he'd have a lot of these danged city brats interfering with his work. I explained, very calmly for a red-haired person with Irish forebears, that this place was run for the exclusive benefit of these children, that the children were not here to be exploited for the benefit of the place, a philosophy which he did not grasp, though my fancy city language had a slightly dampening effect. I added that what I required in a farmer was the ability and patience to instruct the boys in gardening and simple outdoor work, that I wished a man of large sympathies whose example would be an inspiring influence to these children of the city streets. Steary, pacing about like a caged woodchuck, launched into a tirade about silly Sunday-school notions, and by a transition which I did not grasp, passed to a review of the general subject of women's suffrage, I gathered that he is not in favor of the movement. I let him argue himself quiet, then I handed him a check for his wages, and told him to vacate the tenant-house by twelve o'clock next Wednesday. Steary says he'll be danged if he will. Excuse so many dangs. 
It is the creature's only adjective. He was engaged to work for this institution by the President of the Board of Trustees, and he will not move from that house until the President of the Board of Trustees tells him to go. I don't think poor Steery realizes that since his arrival a new President has come to the throne. Allure, you have the story. I make no threats, but Steery or McBride, take your choice, dear sir. I am also about to write to the head of the Massachusetts Agricultural College at Amherst, asking him to recommend a good, practical man with a nice, efficient, cheerful wife, who will take the entire care of our modest domain of seventeen acres, and who will be a man with the right personality to place over our boys. If we get the farming end of this institution into running shape, it ought to furnish not only beans and onions for the table, but education for our hands and brains. I remain, sir, yours most truly, S. McBride, superintendent of the John Greer Home. P.S. I think that Steery will probably come back some night and throw rocks through the windows. Shall I have them insured? My dear enemy, you disappeared so quickly this afternoon that I had no chance to thank you, but the echoes of that discharge penetrated as far as my library. Also, I have viewed the debris. What on earth did you do to poor Steery? Watching the purposeful set of your shoulders as you strode toward the carriage-house, I was filled with sudden compunction. I did not want the man murdered, merely reasoned with. I am afraid you are a little harsh. However, your technique seems to have been effective. Report says that he has telephoned for a moving wagon, and that Mrs. Steery is even now on her hands and knees ripping up the parlor carpet. For this relief, much thanks. Sally McBride. April 26. Dear Jervis, your vigorous telegram was, after all, not needed. Dr. Robin McRae, who is a grand pawkeymon when it comes to a fight, accomplished the business with beautiful directness. I was so bubbling with rage that immediately after writing to you I called up the doctor on the telephone and rehearsed the whole business over again. Now our Sandy, whatever his failings, and he has them, does have an uncommon supply of common sense. He knows how useful those gardens are going to be, and how worse than useless Steery was. Also, says he, the superintendent's authority must be upheld. That, incredibly, is beautiful coming from him. But anyway, those were his words. And he hung up the receiver, cranked up his car, and flew up here at lawless speed. He marched straight to Steery, impelled by a fine Scotch rage, and he discharged the man with such vigor and precision that the carriage-house window was shattered to fragments. Since this morning at eleven, when Steery's wagon-load of furniture rumbled out of the gates, a sweet peace has reigned over the J.G.H. A man from the village is helping us out while we hopefully await the farmer of our dreams. I am sorry to have troubled you with our troubles. Tell Judy that she owes me a letter, and won't hear from me until she has paid it. Your obdient servant, S. McBride. End of section 8